you're listening to a very brilliant man that's going to speak that is way smarter than all of us. And I have heard him get into very deep philosophical conversations to like two in the morning with Sturgis. Um, and I was in the other room and I was like, I just want to watch the bachelorette. I don't know what they're talking about. This is way too intense. Um, anyways, Tristan, hello. Hey, is this your me. first podcast? You know, I think it is. I didn't think about that until just now, but <laughs> I would say, yeah. Do you want to give a little background as to why you have the credentials to be on this show right now? Because I don't <laughs> have credentials. So I'd like someone to sound like they have a little bit of a credential going on. Uh, so I, I've been studying philosophy for, I would say about about 12 years. Um, I have my bachelor's degree from UC Davis. Um, I went on to do a master's degree um, in philosophy at University of Wisconsin. And I'm currently uh, finishing my PhD at uh, UC Riverside. Uh, a lot of my background in philosophy is about studying ancient philosophies, something that I think is really interesting in the kind of context we're gonna be talking about. And then also ethics, so contemporary ethics and also ancient ethics. A lot of people have an idea of what ethics is that's not not too far off, like it's an idea of what's right and wrong and how you should make choices. But the way I see ethics is that it's really fundamentally a guide for how to live your life. It's a guide for mm -hmm. the most fundamental choices about um, how to live in order to achieve your own happiness and your own well-being. So, so what would be like the best example in the real world, like in the times that we are right now? Well, so an example of an ethical uh, principle, I would say, that is really important for uh, living a good life is living honestly. So that's just one example. So what? how do we understand the virtue of honesty and what does that mean and how does that contribute um, to your self-esteem and to your ability to have friendships? And there are psychological issues there, but the philosophical issue is that this is a character trait that you need to have, or that I would argue that you need to have in order to live well, in order to achieve happiness. Part, part of the uh, study of philosophy is establishing what's, what's the context for these questions. Because mm -hmm. it's not just, we're not just asking these questions out of nowhere, we're asking them within a context of, okay, how do I, how do I live my life? And so fundamentally, all, all ethical questions are about what's up to us or what, what are the choices we can make? Um, mm -hmm. in determining our character. And there's some things that happen to us that are not up to us or are not part of the choices we make, like trauma or, um, you know, if you have psychopathy as part of a genetic disorder, or if you have genetic features or things that you've inherited that make you more prone to depression, mm -hmm. well, you can't, you can't like choose that or choose not to be that way. You can make other choices that acknowledge that, in connection to thinking about um, depression and anxiety and things like that, I think what are the philosophical tools at our disposal that can help us uh, fight or meet the challenges of depression and anxiety? Um, well, a huge part of that is identifying what's up to us and what's not up to us. And that's a major theme in certain ancient philosophical uh, issues. So in particular with, there was a school of philosophers from ancient Greece and then also 
uh, in ancient Rome called the Stoics. And their whole ethical system was a huge part of the foundation was we need to identify what's in our control and what is not. Because mm -hmm. so to take an example, um, if there is an earthquake that kills your family, it shouldn't change your ability um, to act virtuously and to mm -hmm. think properly that that happened it, because it's beyond your control. And they make a distinction between thinking, um, it doesn't mean that like you should, shouldn't have a reaction or that you shouldn't uh, feel pain or something like that. But it means that what you should focus on is not living the rest of your life focusing, oh my God, like those people have died, like my life is over because it's, there's nothing you can do about it. And in that respect, right. it's, it would be the same as lamenting that you're not immortal or that you weren't born in a different time period or that. But not couldn't that create some sort of PTSD where it would create like some sort of, you know, trauma that would happen? Couldn't you argue that 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 would happen? Like, yes, it's not out of, it's not in your control. I guess not argue, but could that be like a reason? Like, let's use like, let's go way back, right? Let's use an example of like Pompeii, right? Like, let's talk about did trauma exist in the past? Like, do we know anything about trauma in that sense? Because obviously we know when there's, you know, natural disasters that happened, you know, X amount of years ago, right? Wherever you want to look in the world. But we don't really know much about mental health or am I wrong on that? Was that something that was written and that was talked about with philosophers and with, you know, anyone? I don't know anything about that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, I think as far as I can tell, you, you know, of course, there of course there wasn't a study of psychology or a science of psychology. That's definitely right. true. And people knew very little about consciousness. As far as what I know from ancient Greece, I think, you know, there were definitely, they had a category for people that they would call lunatics or people who are unable to function mentally. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a lot different than saying that they had some kind of process for understanding, okay, what's a psychological trauma or what is uh, depression or anxiety? And I'm not sure they really um, had that. They did have an idea of there are times when your thoughts or your desires can be out of harmony and it prevents you from being able to function. Um, but that's a, that's not a very sophisticated way of thinking about it compared to what we have from modern psychology. Right. And, but I mean, if you really think about it, we all are lunatics, like the crazies <laughs> that do have diagnosis. That is very true. So they're not wrong on that, but you know, I, I've talked to many, you know, psychologists about this and psychiatrists and all sorts of people in that field and neuroscientists. And they say, you know, even 20 years ago, we didn't know what we know now. Even a year ago, we didn't know what we knew now. So it's interesting that they would even acknowledge that there was, in quote, unquote, crazies you know, in that world, because that's acknowledging that there probably was something going on which is like another question for you. And like, maybe you don't know this, but do you think that, I guess I always have the confusion, right? Is like, I get that 
a lot of people think that mental health is like a luxury item, right? You can be like, oh, everyone's depressed, like calm down and you can take medication. A lot of people don't understand mental health enough and still have a stigma behind it where they think it's like a luxury item, like a therapist is a luxury item. Um, but I'm like losing track because I have like a million things going on in my head. Do you think that we always had some sort of underlining mental health issue and it was just not talked about and just put into like a crazy person category? Or do you think that this is something that throughout the ages, if you will, that we have created through evolution? That's interesting. Um, I, so I think it would be. I think this would be a slightly better question probably for um, a psychologist or someone who knows the history of psychology better than I do, to be fair. But I will say, I mean, I think the fundament, there are fundamental issues relating to mental health that I think are true for any human being living at any point in history. And so I'll give an example of that, uh, self-esteem. And so self-esteem, uh, I would define as the knowledge that you're capable of achieving happiness or achieving your values. You know, insofar as depression, the moods and thoughts that are associated with depression inhibit or uh, preclude or undermine self-esteem. Self-esteem is a core issue that we need to face regardless of what time period we live in. And I think mm -hmm. maybe there are different kinds of anxiety that have appeared more recently. For example, maybe there's a new kind of anxiety that comes from social media or something like that. Right. And maybe oh, that's before. Right. But the core issue of like, do you feel capable of dealing with reality and capable of achieving your happiness? That's going to be true whether you live in ancient Greece or, you know, in Renaissance Italy or in uh, medieval Europe or in the current day. Like that's was that something, something that was like written about. Issue. So they didn't, the ancient Greeks didn't have a concept of self-esteem, uh, but they, Aristotle did have a, an idea of positive self-evaluation. The way in which that came up predominantly for him as this is part of what it means to live a good life is in his account of friendship. Mm -hmm. So Aristotle's account of friendship is that, and just sorry, a quick background is that uh, for the ancient Greeks, friendship was on a continuum with romantic relationships. So they would call, you know, if you if you're deeply in love with uh, a person of the opposite sex or of the same sex for that matter, but there's something uh, sexual about it and romantic, it would still be a kind of friendship on their way of thinking about friendships. And they separated that from like contractual agreements of marriages that were for political reasons and so on. For the ancient Greeks, um, and Aristotle in particular, they saw friendship as you need to, you have a need for visibility. You have a need to have someone see you the way you see yourself. Mm -hmm. And the only way to achieve that best or highest kind of friendship um, is if you love yourself. Because that's what makes you capable of loving someone who sees you in that same way. So right. it, it's kind of like you're part, you're jointly participating in the love of yourself with another person. So would you say that they had very high self-esteem? Self well, yeah. So that, that would be that, you know, they didn't have the concept of self-esteem put in that way, but I would say to have that kind of friendship or 
thinking about it in that way is essentially thinking about self-esteem because loving yourself and seeing yourself as capable of achieving happiness is a, I would say a core component of mm -hmm. self-esteem. Just to finish up on the what's up to us and what's not to us uh, issue, you were talking about uh, trauma. And I think trauma is actually one of the contexts in which identifying what's up to you and what's up, not up to you is actually really crucial. So, it, you know, if you think about, um, and I, I have to preface this a little bit by saying that I haven't had um, significant traumas in my life, but I've had a lot of close people in my life who have. And I've mm -hmm. gone through a lot of the like process with them of talking about it and thinking through it and so on. And but I also want to let you know <laughs> that traumas don't have to be defined by they have to be really big. You know, there's a lot of cases that have, you know, I have personally seen and like spoken with with people where it seems like it's not a big deal that something might have happened to them or around them or whatnot. And it can have such a, a ripple effect in their life that you don't know about. So I'm not saying that like you have a trauma. <laughs> I'm not forcing that on you, but for you, you should know, like it can be even the littlest thing that that has affected you. And you may have also had trauma hearing someone else's trauma. Yeah. And you absorb that and you may take that little piece and it may affect you for the rest of your life. And you don't realize it until like this aha moment happens. But anyways, just go back, yeah, but go back to the smart shit. So if you're thinking about, okay, this thing happened, let's say, you know, um, I was assaulted um, mm -hmm. or harmed by someone and it's impairing my ability um, to relate to others. A huge part of moving on from that or processing it and is going to be acknowledging what, you know, the fact that it's not, it's not, you don't have to define yourself by that moment or you don't have to mm -hmm. define your life or your way of dealing with others by that moment. And that's a way of defining like, like what's part of your identity and what's not, which is another mm -hmm. way of saying like, what's up to you or what's not. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you also have to identify like, what, what can I do now in this moment to improve my ability to deal with this trauma or, and what is not going to be helpful. So right. an, another uh, concept that I find useful in this context is the idea of rumination. Rumination, I would say is when you're thinking about things that uh, either have happened to you or that you've done um, without trying to think that you regret or that are painful, without trying to think about what's a solution to either solving the problem or moving on from it. So in other words, dwelling on things that happen. So like, oh, for like, for instance, like, I, like if I tested for a show, like I'm doing it in my own terms, but if it's like, I tested for a show, I didn't get it. And then I'd sit here for like months on end being like, well, if I did this, if I did that, like maybe this would have happened. And like, at the end of the day, I'm the kind of person that says, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I don't like to sit and think about things over and over because then I would die literally. Like I can't handle uh, the negativity. I can't handle the stress. I can't handle the what ifs because it happened. So you deal with what happened and you move on from that and you figure out the tools to like, yeah, and you can't exactly. And you can't change it and you can't change the past. What you can change is what you uh, choose to learn from it, how you choose to act moving forward. 
But once you've identified- And you can still understand, you can still understand that there's a problem, but what are the tools to make you put that in the back of the the brain, accept what happened and now move forward in your life? Yeah. And it's a, it's a mindset shift from being a passive recipient or, you know, someone to whom things happen Mm -hmm. to a shift to thinking of yourself as an active agent in the world that my life is defined by my own choices and my character is defined by my own choices. And I can learn from things and improve and find exercises or mental processes that will help me overcome things that were painful in the past. That's, that's not to say that it's obvious, it's going to be easy or anything, but it's, it's a different mindset than uh, focusing on things that are beyond your control. And I I think for myself, when I've experienced uh, depression in my life, which is mostly, I would say between the age of um, 19 to 21, where it was uh, pretty serious. To me, that was a huge shift for me was identifying when I was doing this rumination and saying, wait, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to think about this stuff in the past that um, I'm not working to change or learn from anymore. And I'm just mm-hmm. going through the motions of continually reliving that ex- those uh, experiences or those painful moments. How did you get out of it? Well, I think in my particular case, um, there was a geographical shift and a, cha- a change of friends, which I think for me was really helpful in noticing like what kinds of like noticing that I had power over my environments you know what I mean it's like Mm -hmm. I can choose to be around people that encourage positivity and I can choose to be in environments where I feel productive and capable um, and where I can learn to take care of myself and love myself because the place I was in was mentally was partly defined also by who I was choosing to be around Mm -hmm. um, and the kinds of places I would be in um, like even geographically. So a, a, a geographic shift, I, I would say, is always a really healthy way to get a new perspective. So, right. And I think also like manifestation, like even if you feel like I know for me, when I had, like you know, a suicide attempt and all this stuff, I had to keep telling myself over and over like, oh, my life is great. Oh, this is amazing. Because if I didn't do that, even though I knew that I was in the most darkest, deepest, awful place. I had to manifest this shit. And I had to keep telling myself over and over that even though I knew I had bipolar disorder, even though I knew knew like when I was like 21 and I got diagnosed, I needed medication. I have to still to this day consistently have this for all intents and purposes, like a narcissistic, narcissistic ego (laughs) to keep going. So I, I manifest that positivity and not even positivity, but like manifest surviving life. And I don't know if there's like some philosophical thing behind that, but I truly believe in the, you know, you can't live in your past. You should live in the present and be present. But I think that you also have to consistently think about your future and not in a stressful way of like, oh my God, my job. Oh my God, my relationships. But truly believe in yourself because I think like, you know, the Greeks, like having self-esteem really truly can change the way others see you, how you see yourself. And even if you don't feel your best, if you act like your best, Honestly, like a lot of shit went positive for me when I did that. You know, only the present exists. We we live in the present. But to enjoy the present 
and to enjoy our, for, the, for our whole lives because we, are, we need to think about long range, like how are we going to live a whole life? And to think about that, you do need to think about what kind of person do I want to be and um, what do I want my life to be defined by and those kinds of, mm-hmm. and I, I would say those are ethical questions. But at the end of the day, the purpose of those is to make your life valuable in the present. So I, mm-hmm. I would agree with you that life, life is about the present, but we have to have long range goals in order to enjoy the present, in order to be active in the present. And, you know, there's a lot of people in myself included in the past where I would think about past relationships and like, oh, should I have gotten back with that person or should I stayed with that person beyond even just work? And I think that that is the worst thing that you can possibly do is to do that. It will create depression. It will create anxiety. It will create a panic attack because you, you made a decision in your life and you have to deal with that decision. And odds are 99.9% it was the right decision. That kind of brings up another point for me. It's uh, philosophically is the idea of free will. And I mean, this is a philosophical issue. And there are a lot of philosophers um, in the past and now still that uh, deny that there is such a thing as free will. Um, I would say they're Why? wrong. Well, because philosophers used to, especially in the time dominated by Christianity. So thinking, for example, of early modern philosophers who were in uh, beginning in medieval Europe and were influenced by um, Platonism and early Christianity, they held that free will is a product of the immortal and immaterial soul of the human being. They thought, well, you you can't see choices in nature, right? I mean, if you look at nature, it's all deterministic. You just see things causing other things necessarily. They thought, so the only way we can make sense of free will is by attributing it to our soul. At a certain point with the scientific revolution in the um, starting in the 17th century and going through the 18th and 19th, it was no longer respectable to think of, well, there's this separable, not immaterial soul that we have. Um, we can't make sense of that with science. And so right. once you drop that, then you're left with, okay, that means that we don't have free will and that we're determined because we're just part of physical nature like everything else. So, but I think it's a mistake. Um, and I think it, it's a bit more balanced now uh, to where there are more philosophers who think that there's some naturalistic conception of free will that we can have. But Um, I think the idea of thinking that just because physical matter is deterministic means that our consciousness is deterministic um, is a mistake. It's a misapplication of categories, actually, I would say. Mm -hmm. Do you think that a lot of the philosophers now, though, have changed their perspectives on free will? I think there's a growing number of philosophers who recognize that there's something incoherent about determinism. And by by incoherent, I mean, there's something that's nonsensical about thinking that we're not responsible for our own decisions. And so mo- I would say now probably a good half or maybe 70%, as much as 70% of philosophers will say that there's some kind of compatibility between free will and determinism. So we don't have ro- a kind of robust free will in the sense that people, philosophers used to think, 
but that there's some sense in which we can hold people responsible, even though the world is determined. Leaving that aside, I, I wanted to, the reason I brought that up actually is because I think understanding that we have free will and that we're responsible for our actions is extremely important in, in facing uh, mental challenges, including anxiety and depression, because it's important to recognize the agency we have in determining our own emotions and our own mm -hmm. thoughts. You, you, let's say you read a news article and in the morning, and then you feel sad the whole day and you realize, wow, why do I feel so sad? And then you realize it's because you read that article and you have the power. First of all, you have the power to decide I'm not, I'm going to avoid reading about things that are beyond my control. So what we already talked about, um, but you also have the power to identify like what is the emotion I'm feeling and why do I feel that? And is it based on something that's true? Sadness, I would say, is a response to a loss of value or, or perceived threat to your own values. If you identify that and then you ask yourself, okay, what's the what was I responding to in this article? And does it actually does it actually affect my life or my ability to affect my life? Um, or is it, am I just feeling sad because that's some kind of automatic reaction I have to that? And once you identify, once you make those identifications and you can say, oh, I was feeling sad because of that. Now you have the power. First of all, you have the power to say, well, I'm going to avoid like, maybe like I'm going to restrict or change when I read the news, but you can also identify what times when your emotions aren't responding to things that are true. Maybe you feel sad because you didn't get a promotion that you thought you deserved at work. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe then you get angry and you feel, you start to think, um, you know, I'm, I'm no good or I'm worthless or I'm terrible at my job. And you feel these feelings of uh, worthlessness or low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. You have the power, you have the free will, you have the power to identify what those emotions are and re and say like, no, actually that's based on the, I might, if you identify that, you might say that's based on a false um, conclusion. It's just because I didn't get that promotion doesn't make me a bad person or bad at my job. It just means mm -hmm. that maybe on this particular occasion, my employer didn't recognize my work in the way that he should have. Um, but that's not my fault. That's not something bad about me. And it, once you make that identification, you can see that you have, we have a lot of agency in changing our emotions uh, by identifying them and identifying. Well, and you could also like going back to the article, you could read the article and think that you're sad because you have empathy for, you know, let's say it's about children or something and you have empathy, but really it could also be something that triggered you from the past that you don't even realize and you never recognized or been able to um, put a name to the problem and exactly. not even realize that something else will trigger you. And I think that a lot of the issues that we have right now going on in the world is people are taking in so much information all day long, constant, even if you're not reading the news, someone's going to say something at the office. Someone's going to say something at the grocery store. Like there's always such like this heaviness that's going on. And it's about creating a toolkit 
to help you. I, I talked about this in, in another interview where it's about creating an outlet, right? Creating some sort of, whether it's creativity, whether it's art, whether it's music or writing, it doesn't matter what it is, going on a fucking jog, like whatever. You have to put something else away and figure out how to let that go. Otherwise it will continue with you forever. Like it just doesn't go away. And I think that that's super important that people don't talk about is you do need to find that outlet with meditation, with something, because just human condition, you read something, it's going to affect you. And the, you can't just be like, oh, okay, it's going to go away. Yes, there is a part where you choose your own destiny. You choose your own fate. You choose, you know, your own free will of what you're going to take with you. But there also has to be another part of it because sometimes you can't just get out of your head. And it, and it, you know, sometimes sadness, like you were saying, sometimes sadness is appropriate. It's appropriate yeah. to feel sad if um, someone, you know, died or right. someone breaks up with you that you really liked, but having the power to identify those emotions will help you identify the situations in which sadness or anger is not appropriate. And, that well, and also really for a lot of people, sadness, sometimes, sometimes I find for myself and with others, sadness feels good, right? To be depressed and to be sad. Sometimes it feels good just to be like, oh, woe is me. Like you get to, you get like a bonus point from the universe, but that's literally the worst thing. And that's your mind tricking you that it's like a good thing. Like you're like, oh my God, it's like a, like being a kid and you get a sick day, you know? And it's like, no, 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 that's not good. You have to do something with this. You can't sulk in this problem over and over and over because it will eat up your inside. Actually, there's another thing I wanted to talk about, which I think is correlated with this, which is the idea of, well, how you think about what happiness is. And so here I, I would say my idea of a, a really powerful idea of thinking about this or way of thinking about this came from Aristotle, who thought of happiness as um, an activity. So for him, happiness is when you're engaged in life promoting rational activities. And that's a, a very interesting way of thinking about happiness, because normally we think of happiness as a kind of feeling or this fleeting kind of state. When you think about happiness in that way, it can be harder to see, like, how can I attain it? It seems like this elusive, magical thing that like either you have it or you don't. And then maybe it like comes into your life for a moment and then goes away. But if you instead think about it as what happiness is, is an activity where I'm continually making rational life affirming decisions that promote um, life affirming values for me, like good relationships and a healthy career. Um, and healthy mental habits and exercise. And that's what happiness is. It's not, it's not a static feeling. It's me engaged in the process of doing those things. It's a much more active orientation. And there, you, from that perspective, you couldn't make sense of like, I'm waiting around and hoping that happiness is gonna come to me because mm -hmm. happiness is the activity. It's not something that you wait for or that just comes randomly. Um, so I think that's a very powerful and helpful tool to think about 
um, or, you know, to fight depression in that way. No, I totally love that. I mean, I know that whenever I'm feeling really sad and depressed, like, obviously I can't do this now, but like the only thing that would make me happy is like going to Disneyland. And it sounds so stupid, but it's something that I know without a doubt, every single time I've done it, it's a pattern that makes me happy. And, and it's just like the truth. Like there are certain things in my life where if I know I'm having a bad day, if I like, go and walk around even the Grove or the Americana in LA because it looks like Disneyland (laughs) or anything. Just you have to identify one activity. I think that's amazing what Aristotle said because it it is an activity and it could be a jog around the block. It could be writing in your journal. It could just be like taking your dog somewhere. I don't know, like whatever it is, I think that's a key thing that everyone should find at least one thing that makes them happy to do an activity of happiness. And even if you are in a manic episode or you are, you know, chronically depressed and you have to be on medication, you can't help chemically like what the imbalance is. At least it's one thing that you can pull out of the toolkit. Okay. This is what I'm going to take. Tristan said this. I'm going to I'm going to listen to Tristan and Aristotle right now and I'm going to find an activity that brings happiness. <laughs> and I think that that's like so great, though, because it is something that's so silly that you wouldn't think about. That's easy to do to help a problem. Happiness is difficult to achieve and maintain. Um, totally. It's only, the hardest. It's difficult in the sense that it requires a lot of effort. Um, but it's not difficult in the sense that it's not possible for everyone, because I think it is uh, possible for everyone. Assume, you know, assuming a certain range of circumstances, I think um, if like you're in a dictatorship or um, like a war, then maybe it's impossible. What, what I think is important realizing that kind of as you were saying is that the way to achieve happiness isn't you focus on the fact that you're not happy or you focus on like mm-hmm. wanting to be happy. It's you choose to find things that make your life meaningful and you do those things. And happiness is the yeah. consequence or the experience of doing those things. It's not, it's not something uh, that you, it's not like you walk around thinking, oh, I need to find something that's going to make me happy. It's more so you find things that you enjoy and are meaningful to you and you figure out how do I construct a life where I can keep doing those things in an integrated way. Um, well, and you're not promising happiness forever. You're promising happiness for an X amount of time that, that yeah. can hold you over for a little bit longer. It's like the drug that can hold you to go a little bit longer. <laughs> like even 10 minutes of happiness in a 24 hour day is better than no happiness. Well, so I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that that's the other side of thinking about it in this way is that you're not going to feel um, defeated if there's a day where you don't, you don't feel particularly joyful or cheerful. And you think, man, work is really hard today. Or like, I'm really not feeling my relationship today. I just like want to be alone. And I do, don't want to talk to this person, even though they, um, I need to talk to them because they need me right now. When, if your perspective is, well, happiness is this kind of activity you're not going to see that as a sign of like, I'm doing something wrong because happiness doesn't mean that every single moment of your life has joy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's often very appropriate to feel um, frustrated or sad. It shouldn't, your life shouldn't be dominated by those feelings, but insofar as 
um, life involves meeting challenges and sometimes we're not in the right mental state for it. We're tired or it's difficult or we're making mistakes. It's normal uh, not to constantly feel joy, but it should. Well, and affect- if someone does feel joy all the time, then they're a fucking insane person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so, and, and so that shouldn't affect your self-evaluation. It's the standard isn't, I should be feeling joy all the time. It's, Am I engaged in the kind of activity uh, that is rational and life promoting and will give me an integrated life of values? And I, I mean, I think when you do think that way and you act consistently with it, you will have a life that's characterized by joy, but it's not by seeking it directly or assuming that every moment has to be filled with joy that you're going to get to that life. Yeah. And then getting back to the past of like, you have to choose also the people that are in your life. When you were talking about that, you had, you know, depression from certain amount of ages and you realize geographically and the people that you are surrounding yourself with, like, yes, we can't choose our family. Right. But we can choose people in our life, whether they be best friends, whether they be acquaintances, like whatever it may be, just make sure that you selfishly take care of your needs and not just, oh, well, this person needs me as a friend. Like they're not really great for me and they kind of suck my energy, but what am I supposed to do? Like, I feel bad for them. Sometimes you got to be like, okay, what, what does Alessandra need right now? What is the best thing that's going to make me happy because, and, and feel like I'm a human being because otherwise we use, we lose these emotions, sorry. And we lose our sense of who we are. And I think that that's, where the spiral comes and when it gets really scary. I would say moreover, like, so if you, if we think about friendship in the way that Aristotle thought about it, which I think is totally right and profoundly true that what we need basically out of friendship is visibility and out of romantic relationships. We need people to see us in the way that we see ourselves. Um, and I, I, I think what you said is right, that there is, there's something, um, profoundly uh, selfish about that. I think to clarify though, that we have to clarify what we mean by selfish in that sense, because I think a lot of people misunderstand what selfishness Mm -hmm. is. And that was kind of, that was a topic that I was talking about. So, but um, he's like, Oh, I'm with it. I'm married to a narcissist who's selfish. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes people package together the idea of you're pursuing your own happiness or your own values with you don't care about other people or um, you're disregarding other people in a way that either violates them or disrespects them. But those two are, we can separate those two things. So if I find someone that I really love and want to uh, collaborate with and share my life with, and pursue goals with them and um, get to know them and enjoy their presence. There Mm -hmm. is something fundamentally selfish about that in the sense that I'm choosing that person based on my values and how they- And your needs, yeah. Yeah, and it's about them, but it's also about me in a really basic way because if it wasn't selfish, I would just go, if relationships weren't selfish, you would just go find the person who you think needs you the most regardless mm-hmm. of whether you enjoyed their company or whether you right. value. Uh, but no one pursues relationships in that way. But that's not to say that uh, you're being selfish but, in the sense of right. disrespecting 
people or not caring about others. So we have to separate this idea of uh, something that's selfish in the sense of you're pursuing or promoting your own happiness versus you're disregarding or inconsiderate of others because you can pursue your happiness in a way that uh, is considerate of others and respectful. Well, and um, and I, I, would, also, I would say that's what true selfishness really is at the end of the day. Completely. I, I completely agree with everything that you're saying right now, because I know that when I don't take care of myself and I don't take care of my mental health and physical health and whatever it may be, just like my energy in general, I'm a miserable person to be around. And I know that there are steps that need to be taken in my life in order to have the best relationship I possibly can, you know, being married, the best relationships I can with my friends, the best relationships I can, you know, with my mom and with my family. And I think you're right. A lot of people do think that I'm sure there's a lot of people that can vouch and say that I'm a very selfish human being, <laughs> but that's because they don't see the grand scheme of things of I'm trying to do all I can to then be able to help others. I always use the analogy of an airplane. When you're in an airplane and you're an adult, you want to take care of your air mask. If it goes down your oxygen mask before a child, right? Because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be the best version of yourself and you're not going to be able to help or be there for others. But I've never heard it in the sense where, when you're looking for a partner, you know, like in a relationship, forget even friendship in a relationship, how you have like a checklist of things that you want and not even that you want, but that you need. And you, it's just, I never heard of it in that way, like thinking that selfish, but it totally is in the most positive possible way that you could have it. And, you know, and I think, people do try to pursue relationships in ways that are unselfish and altruistic. I think uh, it's not as common, uh, I would say, um, but, it, or maybe, maybe it is as common. Um, yeah. Because it I, could be with like people who are crave being like um, caretakers and crave helping the, you know, I know a lot of girls who crave being with the guy that needs all the help they possibly can. And they may yeah. not love that guy or really want to be with them, but they want to be the one that makes them the better person. Yeah. So I, it, it might be as common, but it, it doesn't, it usually doesn't last as long because those kinds of relationships are doomed to failure because ultimately what, what is happening is that if the entire relationship is based about one person's needs and not the others. So the person who's doing the altruistic, sacrifice for the sake of the other person um ultimately they're gonna like lose energy and not be not feel respected not feel considered if it goes far enough they're gonna hate their relationship and hate themselves um and they're not oh. even going to be able to help the other person at a certain point so right it, it kind of comes down to the fact that you can't you can only ignore your own needs for visibility and um and love and support for so long mm -hmm. and if you try to if you try to have a relationship that way, you can do it for a while, but it's ultimately going to um, self-implode. So fascinating to me because coming from it, from a creative philosophical awareness of not really knowing the specifics of mental health disorders, but, but understanding the brain from ancient times. I mean, I think, so the happiness is activity idea, we touched on it a bit, but I think just to expand on that, a little bit, 
I think it's interesting to think about how you we need to be like think of ourselves fundamentally as agents as active the more you can do that in your life the more empowered you're going to be so i'm kind of like unpacking well what does it mean for happiness to be activity so here's um some more concrete examples of that when we're choosing our work or the career that defines our lives um or one of the careers that define our lives some people change careers you want to think about like what is really meaningful to me and what really defines me and what's and what's also something that i can see myself doing for a really long time mm-hmm. and that's to think about it in a really active way a really a more passive way to think about it would be well um i can do what my parents did or um i guess i have this degree that i got in this thing and so that's what i'm qualified to do or oh this job just came up so i guess i'll do that that's a less active way to think about it in the sense that to some extent you're allowing contingent circumstances to define your choices. Mhm. So living a living a life of activity ultimately means you're defining what you're doing and you're purposeful and you know, you know, in any given moment or issue of your life you're able to say I know why I'm doing this. and i know what the ultimate goal is and i know how it relates to a life that i want to live like a whole life and and that's a tall order that's a difficult task and it takes um a long time to figure it out but if you ask those questions and you pursue that in an active way i think the reward is that you will live a life of happiness or at least so here's a question for you possible. right so my question is I'm I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed to be living the way that I that I do. Let's live in the real world for instance, right? Where some people live in a world and live in an area where they cannot have their life plan dream job or they don't have the funds to be able to go to the school that they want or they literally can't move out of the little town that they are in. you know and they have to live in the real world where it's like i need to put food on the table i'm going to have to do my job that's $8 an hour or i have to work at walmart because this is the only option what is another way for someone to create that grand scheme of happiness but also to live in the real world if they don't have the luxury of saying i want to be a therapist and i'm going to be able to create this life and i'm going to have this family and i'm going to do all this like what is another step that we can do for those who do not have the opportunities and and it's not accessible to them yeah so um we have to define the standard for our own happiness within a range of what's possible to us and i think the other I think what you're touching on the other part of what it means to live an active life is a respect for causality. And what I mean by respect for mm-hmm. causality and this I think this is a fundamental philosophical issue is that you do what you can with the circumstances that you're in and what you're able to do and you don't seek to achieve um an effect without a cause. Here's an example of like how you can fail to do that. Um you could live a life where you consistently compare yourself say say you're an uh you're an actor and you consistently compare yourself to the most famous celebrity actors and you constantly think about like wow like 
what were they doing when they were my age or like what would they do in my situation and how come I'm not where they are um that's not respecting causality because that's not respecting what's possible in your circumstances and what you're able to do you're defining your life by reference to someone else mm -hmm. so I, I would say what is important isn't up to a limit I, I think where you end up matters but what it matters from the perspective of what you were able to do and what you will achieve because happiness and uh, self-esteem come from the consciousness of your own competence and your own growth. And that's not, that's not determined by some kind of final outcome. That's not mm -hmm. happiness. Doesn't mean you're going to end up with a mansion in Beverly Hills and you're going to be a millionaire. It means where did you start and what did you do with like the resources you had? And where did you mm -hmm. come? And that's what you can be proud of. And that's what you can take ownership of. Um, and that's what it means to uh, live actively and respect causality in the sense that I'm talking about. Yeah. And I think that that's very key to remember is even the littlest of accomplishments or successes should be rewarded um, by your, by, you know, yourself. Um, I, I, Cause I, I know for me, there's little shit that I do and I'm like, Oh, no one fucking cares about this. This is lame. And I do compare myself to other people. And I do go, where was this person when they were my age? Like, what were they doing? You know, especially now in my life, I feel like everyone has kids and everyone is like, knows what they're doing with their life. And I'm still 33. And I'm like, I know what I want to be doing with my life and I'm doing what I want, but am I missing out? Is there more? It's constantly that comparison. And I never take that moment to go, wow, I did have this. I did accomplish this. And it may not be a big deal to someone else, but it's a huge deal to me, you know, or something is not a big accomplishment to me. And someone else is going, I wish I had that, you know, and I've had that a lot of times in my life where other people are like, no, you're, you, you have accomplished so much. I'm like, what? Now, and it feels not at all. And I'm not saying that I'm like fucking awesome, but I'm just saying there is like certain stuff that I've done where I don't, I, I take it for granted and I don't treat that as something I should be proud of. And it really fucks with my own head. I would say, um, and I, Aristotle, I think has this perspective too, that a, a huge aspect of achieving happiness is pride is take being able to um, recognize your own accomplishments and achievements in your character. That's, a, I think that's actually another way of not respecting causality. Mm -hmm. To put it in that abstract way I was putting it, that abstract philosophical sense, because you're in a sense, you're not respecting um, what you did and where, what you came from. And you're taking, right. it's kind of like what you're saying, what you take it for granted. I think sometimes, people that are you can have people that are very honest and very good people that can fall into that kind of trap because they're very ambitious I have a lot of really ambitious goals for my life and uh, this is not where I want to be but mm -hmm. you can't let that get in the way of recognizing and taking pride in what you've done because otherwise you'll never be happy because there, you can always focus on what you haven't achieved Mm -hmm. There's no, that. I think that's so yeah. true. I mean, I, I know for myself, I feel I 
I, I, I'm the problem that I have is I'm aware that I don't acknowledge these things and I'm aware that I'm sulking or I'm aware that I'm not like, oh, wow, you did this. And that's what's even worse is like knowing that you're not doing it and preaching to other people that you should and then not taking your own fucking advice. <laughs> but but it is but it's so everything you're saying is right. I think, you know, if you woke up out of bed in the morning and you can breathe, I think that that's an accomplishment. Doesn't seem yeah. like it, but it is. Oh my God, this is so fun. I love this conversation that we're having. I feel like so many people are going to just love this. It's been great. Um, and I think it, I like that you've brought up a lot of your own personal examples because I think that helps. A lot of the stuff that I said was pretty abstract. So you're helping keep it pretty tied to concrete examples. I tried to with every episode because I'm a narcissist, but also... <laughs> <laughs> Because I always have to talk about myself, but no, I do try to make it. You know what it is? I, I find when people come on the show, it's my way of processing. If I can associate my issues or an example of what I've gone through with, you know, a guest of mine, it helps me kind of process their their life and their job and their philosophy and their way of viewing the world. And I think that that's really how I connect. And I find a lot of the people who listen, who write in the, the listeners do that as well. They'll send me, Oh, I went through this exact same thing, you know? So I'm sure that this episode is going to get amazing, you know, responses because people are going to go, Oh my gosh, you know, I took his advice and I thought of what's an activity of happiness. And I did this. Um, and just hearing those responses and hearing other people talk about it. And I don't know if you know this, but we have a like a little platform forum on Facebook. So, you know, one of the questions will be like, what's your activity of happiness? And everyone from all over the world like writes in. And so it's like just a fun way of communicating and all being connected because we all are one. And that's kind of how it is. But wait, I have one final question for you. Tristan, what is your emotional support? Ooh, um, you know, it changes because it, it, am I allowed to choose like a very specific thing? You can do whatever you want. There's no, like, I, I would say this is not supposed to be serious. Okay. I would say pre COVID, I would say cuddling. <laughs> <laughs> but, with anyone uh, in general, guys, Tristan will cuddle with anyone. And I would say host or during COVID, um, my like go-to like hotline of emotional support um, has just been calling, like setting aside like a good hour and then calling up a friend I haven't talked to in a long time and just seeing about how they're doing and just like really having a real conversation, not just, hey, I needed to ask you about something, but like, right. let's have a real conversation for like an hour. And, and you and have been traveling like crazy by yourself, COVID safe though. Um, I feel like during COVID and you're someone that's very active and you hike and you like climb mountains and do stuff like that, that I'll never understand. And you're around bugs all the time. And it's like my worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> like everything you do when you guys are like, oh yeah, we're going to this cave. I'm like, go have fun. That is literally my worst nightmare. Like put me on a beach. I just want to like scuba dive and like call it a day or like sit at the beach. 
um, or go to Disneyland. But I think that that must be some sort of an emotional release, the going and being, you must be just super in touch with um, the environment and with the world that that helps you out as well. Yeah, I think for me, the value of being in nature or being in the wilderness is it you step out of the normal context of your life problems and you're able to view them more easily at, from a detached perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that's the value for me. So for example, you know, I'm worrying about like a deadline or something, or I'm worried about um, if I'm making progress on my dissertation or about a, a new teaching job that I'm starting next week or something. And I just go in nature and appreciate beauty. And I think, okay, like the, li- the point of life is to enjoy it. And, you know, in this circumstance where I'm like stepping back from my day-to-day workflow, um, mm-hmm. I'm able to s- see more clearly, I'm not going to get stressed out about that stuff because the whole reason I'm doing those things is to enjoy moments of serenity and peace like I am right now and to um, live a whole life of that. And it gives me energy and like rejuvenation to go back into it and think, okay, like I got this, you know, (laughs) there's nothing stressing about this. Um, Like we live in an advanced society and I'm healthy and I'm not, you know, I'm not in survival mode. Right, right. Um, Well, and what we've learned from this whole episode, as far as I'm concerned, is that the one thing I took, you love to cuddle and you can't wait to find someone to cuddle. So please write in and we'll find you someone. My friend Adrian says cuddling is a human need. And I totally agree. I'm someone, no, I will totally cuddle except in bed. I can't at night. I'm someone that get super hot. I have weird tactile issues, spectrum shit that I like, I can't. Sometimes it's too much. But I appreciate that you guys believe that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really important. Um, Well, Tristan, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great.